Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. I don't know about that weather report. We are in New England, not Hawaii, believe it or not. However, are there new artifacts from the Roswell, New Mexico UFO case? What did Major Jesse Marcel, one of the first officers on scene, record in his personal diary? What is the significance of the I-beam? Hello, and welcome to the 983rd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno coming to you from WON, AM, and FM radio here in Woonsocket, Rhode Island on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live on YouTube and via TuneIn.com. I'm Ben. That was Paul. And today we bring you a classic case with a new angle. To join us, you can call us from anywhere. That's 401-766-1240 or email paul at behindtheparanormal.com. Jesse Marcel III is the son of Dr. Jesse Marcel Jr. and the grandson of Major Jesse Marcel, the Army intelligence officer among the first on scene at the site of the famous Roswell, New Mexico crash of 1947. Daniel Halley is a mineral and laser technology expert with a law enforcement background who has been working with Jesse on some pretty interesting stuff. Uh, Jesse, I have to say to the audience what I said to you privately, uh, your father was one of the finest gentlemen I ever knew, and to the best of our knowledge, the last interview he ever did was with us on the CBS radio edition of this show. Uh, if anybody would like to listen to that, it's show number 454 from 2013. It's available in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com and on the major podcast apps. We also did a tribute show to Dr. Marcel that September, show number 480. So Jesse Marcel and Dan ha- uh, Dan Halley, welcome to Behind the Paranormal. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Hey, you know, we... we Always, we always enjoy having new people on the show, learning different things, and especially on such a classic case. You know, this is kind of the case when it comes to ufology. So, I guess Jesse, let's start with you. Uh, for any of our listeners who aren't familiar with the case, you never know. <laughs> uh, please give us a brief summary of what happened near Roswell, New Mexico, in the July of 1947. Okay, and thank you, and thank you for saying that about my father. Yes, he's he's obviously dearly missed, and he 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 added a lot to the story, and that uh, he was one of the one of the on site, or first person to handle, one of the first people to handle some of the debris. Uh, in brief, um, I, the story of Roswell is really interesting. Um, even though, yeah, it's been 75 years ago this year. And, uh, but it's a, it's a, it's a opener. It, it, it gets people thinking and, and, and going down the path of, of, you know, what they think might be, might not be out there, their interpretation, you know, what's, what's life all about, that kind of thing. So, it's kind of become or evolved into more of that that that, that, that opening statement. Oh, you're with Roswell. Oh, what can you tell us? That kind of thing. Um, in brevity, uh, if if you're not familiar with the story, uh, back in 1947, uh, it was near the end of June. Actually, there was a uh, a large storm, uh, uh, a crash of an unknown. Uh, you know, uh, it's been described by my grandfather as some kind of a. Uh, craft not built by human hands, not made by human hands, um, to a weather balloon, those kind of things. There's a large number of stories about what it could be or what it could be. Uh, my, my grandfather was the lead investigator. He was called out to look at a debris field, a very large debris field, and in that debris field, they found, or he found uh, things like foil and I-beams and uh, 
uh, like burnt plastic type material, miles of what is described as like a fiber optic type material. And uh, when he's out there and assessing the damage in the field, or the, the debris in the field, excuse me, um, that's kind of where he, he, he put it together in his head at that point that uh, whatever he was looking at that wasn't from here. Um, he went back to his base to share what, his, what he had found and what, he had, what he's been looking at. And he decided to make a quick stop by his residence in Roswell. And uh, because this is very significant. Whatever it was, he wasn't sure exactly what it was. But he had a good idea that when it made it back to the base, that it would probably be swept away. And uh, so he went back to his house, uh, woke up my father, um, who was about 12 years old at the time, uh, Jesse Marcel too, Dr. Marcel, and his wife, B.O., and he had spread out the debris on the floor and had a box of, of additional debris on a, on, a, on a chair. And he kind of placed it all over the floor, and he asked my dad, to, hey, take a look at this. What do you think? Do you see anything that looks like it could fit together? Do you uh, see anything that would resemble uh, electronics? At the time, it was more like tubes and that sort of thing. And uh, my father said, you know, no. It just basically it was interesting. It was, it was a bunch of junk. Um, but when my father was a little beam, there was a lot of these like beams that had an eye cross section, um, anywhere from like four inches that with them, you know, to maybe several feet in length. And he brought one little piece by over the a kitchen light over the sink and noticed if you looked at an angle, then these symbols would appear. And my grandfather said, hey, maybe you're the first one to look at this alien language. Um, and one thing that was interesting in that conversation that my father um, has talked about is that they started referring to it as a flying saucer. Well, flying saucer was a new term my father hadn't heard of as a child at, at, that, at that point. It was new. Um, and it was it's basically another story here in the state of Washington where I'm at. And uh, anyway, they looked through it, couldn't determine what it was. Uh, it was fascinating. And that uh, my grandfather would end up by collecting that debris, bring it back to the base, sharing it with his boss. And uh, that's where everything kind of, it started and ended. Uh, uh, the, there's a, a famous newspaper article that was written while he was out in the debris field out looking at the things. I was saying they had found a UFO, and uh, they were bringing it back to a hangar. And that was quickly dismissed. Um, it, the world took great notice in it. And uh, after that, my grandfather was, and some of the people he worked with, went to some kind of a meeting. Um, they went away for about 10 days, came back. Uh, my grandfather met with my father and his wife and said, this is a non-event. What I showed you did not happen. None of this happened. And you're not to speak of it again. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's kind of what happened. My uh that this whatever it was that crashed out there in the desert, uh, which my grandfather very strongly said was not made by human hands, um, was uh, kind of the beginning of the Roswell story. Okay, uh, Dan, would you like to add to that? Yeah, you bet. The one of the, you know, with my background, I'm a homicide detective or retired homicide detective. I work in forensic, forensic art, skull reconstruction. Uh, different things, scientific content analysis of language. And after getting to know Jesse and understanding the story, it was really interesting to take a look at the behaviors of what occurred um, at that time. And when you look at what were the behaviors of the government response, um, I think it's pretty telling. Um, had it been just a weather balloon, which is the narrative essentially adopted by the military at that time, 
why did the military send the resources that they send and why did they respond in the way that they did? So I think that action deserves a um, deeper dive into, you know, why were they doing what they were doing? And then you look at the behaviors of um, Major Marcel. You look at an individual that was the head of intelligence um, in that area. You look at what that area was doing at that time. I mean, um, all of our critical uh, atomic weapons research was there in Roswell. So this is an individual that was trusted. And he was also a very dedicated officer. So knowing those things, being a veteran myself, I understand what it's like to be dedicated, carry out the mission, and you do what you're told to do. And all of his behaviors are consistent. So I lean towards really putting some great value in what he did and what he didn't do. Um, and then also just taking a, a, a real assessment of what the military did because their behaviors don't fit um, with their determination of what this was, where Major Marcel's behaviors are very interesting and consistent and, in my opinion, um, really uh, bring some credence or some credibility to what he said once he was out of the military. He did his job when he was in, and when he got out, he felt it was, in my opinion, he felt it was very important to share uh, what he knew when he could. Okay. Now, you two have been working um, and finding some more things in the debris field. Is that correct? No, no. We are involved in another project, but it's not directly with Roswell for debris. Uh, We've been working with more. We're putting together uh, a program, you know, with, we have some of the, the original information, my grandfather's diaries, you know, those kind of things, uh, original documents. And uh, there was a, a short dive or a, a shallow dive into the diary on a, a, a little uh, History Channel documentary a little while ago. And it left a lot more questions than it did answers. So part of what we're going to be doing is going through and investigating uh, some of his original writings and those kind of things. Um, and, and more than that, there is, there we are, the, the, uh, kind of a, a little bit of a, uh, treasure hunt, I could just say, like, you know, for, for perhaps where some of the debris might be or where we're buried by, if my grandfather did in fact keep some of it or was, uh, you know, held onto a piece of it, where that would be, that sort of thing. So, um, but no, not directly with the Roswell event. Okay. How well did you know your grandfather? I was lucky enough, I, my brother and sister, uh, we would spe- we spent a number of summers down in Homa. We were living in Montana, and uh, my grandfather loved fishing, and his house was butted up against a, a bayou. So we would stay- go back and uh, and uh, fish behind his house, and that's where I really got to know the man, um, and, and more about Roswell and his feelings and 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 personality and how the whole thing fit together. So with his diary. Um you know, with with, with have, having been been around him, you know, your your early life and, and such, is there anything in the diary that he never really divulged to you? Anything that you found that was surprising? Any anything in there that that may have lended some sort of theories or, or anything like that that kind of 
went along with the event. The only thing that it, it, it's been kind of spelled out is the diary was a bunch of quotes and that kind of thing was kind of interesting. Sonnets, you name it. And and this is not through me, but when it was being investigated, uh, they were looking at things like uh, everything from pen pressure to how the loops on, 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 on letters changed. And there was a dynamic change in the lettering and the way it was written right in the area of when the July of 1947 event happened, when the, when the Roswell event happened. Hmm. And it changed during that period. And then it went back to another handwriting. Um, it looks or appears that there might have been numerous people that wrote in this document. But uh, it's, it, is a, it is a good mystery, and we're, we're trying to figure it out. Um, they did, they did, some of the people investigating determined there was some kind of code in it. Um, it wasn't as simple as they thought it could be. Uh, so we're going to be opening that up and trying to figure it out ourselves. Code okay. code for what? Good question. It's you know here you have somebody who's an intelligence officer working with other intelligence officers. Um, you know one of the theories put together is that this was a document that was shared amongst other other intelligence officers in the, while it was down there and whatever they were putting in. You know it again it was all the area we're most interested in was resolving around the time of July 1947 mm. and. Uh, just because of the changes, it looked like it could have been in some kind of code. So, you know, did he leave some kind of evidence, you know, beyond what he's spoken um, in the diary? I, I think so, uh, but we're, we need to find that out. Okay, we have a question uh, and comment from Phil in Savannah, Georgia, and I would, uh, when Ben finishes reading it, I'd direct it uh, toward Dan, mm-hmm. throw it in his lap. Sure thing. As a veteran. Yes, uh, let's see. So after reading the Philip Corso book, The uh, Day After Roswell, there is no doubt in my mind that the Roswell event occurred. My question is, were the quote-unquote alien art- aliens artificial intelligence robots or actual living beings? Uh, Dan? You bet. Well, um, I don't know. You know, so a big part of what we're doing is uh, looking into... The information that was available. It, um, when you look at what we know Major Marcel said, you know, conversations that he shared, he shared with Jesse, you know, his own father, um, he didn't believe what crashed was part of this world. Um, it, the information I've seen just in writing and comments and different things like that would lead me to believe that these would have been live um, uh, individuals, uh, and it, I haven't seen anything to indicate uh, robotics or any type of technology um, as far as any beings uh, would have been. Okay, uh, Jesse, did your father have an opinion on that question? Yeah, he did. Uh, he actually, at, at a point, kind of thought that whatever it was that could have made this journey was uh, perhaps had some cybernetic influences of some kind. Um, and, you know, all theory uh, about what could have, you know, made that distance and, and et cetera. Of course, you know, things have changed uh, physics-wise and our, our beliefs on how things could have traveled that far. Um, but it, it's also it the, the idea that, uh, you know, it was some kind of life form. Um, a lot of people have come up and asked, you know, is there... You know, what's the idea about, you know, some kind of a, a UFO that had a symbiotic relationship with uh, its its driver, its its pilot, that kind of thing. 
And it's an interesting idea, um, and it definitely does sort of fit the, the narrative anyway. Uh, my, when, any references, though, as far as, you know, outside alien bodies and those kind of things, uh, my grandfather, as a, when we were growing up, said, you know, I was with the first debris field, although he was part of the whole, the whole, you know, the, the whole incident. And he was very specific, and for several reasons, to tell us that the people that investigated the second crash site, there's multiple crash sites that looked like from the same craft, um, they talked about bodies and those sort of things. And there wasn't, in those, in those, in the paperwork, in those, in that communication, there wasn't anything about being robotic bodies or whatever. They were actually small bodies, um, small humanoid bodies, uh, looking at bodies anyway. Um, uh, I think they, they call them grays or whatever as, as a, as a common term. But, uh, but there's definitely, uh, it, it is there. My, my grandfather, when you talk about that, he, he would, he would carefully, especially when it came to the topic of aliens and bodies, that kind of thing, would be careful about what he told us as, as, we were, we were kids at the time. And it was the idea that he didn't want us to be harassed throughout our lifetime. You know, what did he tell you? What happened? You know, it, it, the times have changed. It's a lot friendlier now than it used to be in this area. But there was definitely, uh, um, you know, as far as, you know, what these were, what they weren't. And, uh, it's, you know, definitely it looked like there was some kind of a, you know, kind of in my opinion and the assumption, the, the assimilation of all the data, um, that there were some kind of bodies and that they were definitely more, uh, you know, they're more, um, they, they weren't so much robots. There was uh, a great deal of interest, certainly, in this subject of, uh, AI and uh, this sort of thing. And uh, two weeks ago, as an example, we had uh, Dr. John Bickerstaff and Daniel Silver Silverman from the UK were associates of the late um, Nigel Kerner, whose uh, leading theory was that uh, these grays are uh, biomechanical or something of that kind. So right along, along the same line. And it was a, it was a good interview, but what, what was so special about that show, I don't know. Because, uh, all of a sudden, in, in the Castos statistics, that, that's one of the several distributors of the audio recording of the show to the podcast apps, that there was a huge spike. 14,000 people listening at one time. I mean, that's great. But, you know, usually we have maybe 300 to 1,000 people listening to the show at any one time. But um, people, I guess, are very interested in that that subject. So uh, we have a comment also from uh, regarding uh, Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. We do, and uh, Phil continues. Uh, as a former Navy man, uh, I have mixed feelings about the Corso book. He was sharing classified information, a major transgression. Uh, do you have any opinion about this? Uh, I noticed he translated shortly after the book came out. Coincidence? Translation is our word for death. We don't believe in death. So, Anyway, that, that's us. So, uh, Jesse or, uh, or Dan? I, I can refer to what my father said um, about the Philip Corso book. It's, you know, the, the book, trans, it, it, it went through several hands before being published. There was the father who had some information, you know, obviously it related to the subject matter. His son then apparently kind of made it, uh, you know, enhanced that information. And then the publisher rewrote it for sales. So my father, it, it, his, his thing it related to the Corso book. Uh, more, some, some of the some of the things mentioned in it, 
you said that basically, you know, talking about integrated circuits being discovered and, and, and reverse engineering and this sort of thing that we're talked about. His belief was that the technology involved is so advanced, it'd be like handing an iPhone that we wouldn't really be able to understand it to the depth of, of what was portrayed. Um, not saying that there wasn't some uh, some good information in it, but he was definitely, I, I would say, on the on the side of being. It had been times um, to make it, you know, that that it it captured up a little bit of where, where he had some questions about it. Anyway. Just because you know he he and his father talked about it a lot, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and it, it just didn't follow along a lot of what what my my grandfather knew and my father would have would have understood. So not not saying that there you know something to it definitely, but he was just saying you know just be you know he he, he fell on the side of skepticism when it came to that book. Okay, uh, Dan, you're a veteran. What say you? Well, uh, anytime you're dealing with classified information, I think it's absolutely critical that people uh, protect. Um, classified information, but uh, that being said, um, I think when people that have knowledge of um, classified information, if they're sharing their opinion um, and stick to their opinion without divulging any specifics content or sharing classified documents, um, I, I don't have an issue with that. And I see a lot of this as being opinion or theory um that is built on the foundation of information that they're aware of. Um, I just think anybody needs to be careful um, with that type of information. But you consistently see, um, you know, from Major Marcel and those involved, um, I think class, the protection of classified information was important to all of them because everything they've discussed has really been based upon um, kind of their feelings and their opinions uh, of what was occurring. You bring up a really, really good point, Dan. And um, I, th I think one of the sort of major sort of um, this is going to sound like a very odd word to use for it, but we'll we'll call it a theme in sort of ufology is this idea of people writing these big tell-all like you know books of classified information. Like I was there, I know the classified stuff. Here's the information, and it it, it seems. It sounds too good to be true for a lot of it, honestly, and and it's it's kind of like okay, well, if you did have access to classified information, why are you divulging it? You know, there's there's sort of that that you know that like part of you that's like, oh, that's really cool. I really want to read this. I want to get into it. I want to dig in and, and see what the secrets are. But then it's like, how can you really trust it if someone has a clearance? You know, because usually if you have a clearance, you know, you, you you don't just go around blabbing everything. You know what I mean? Well, the same thing struck me, too, uh, as a, a former Coast Guardsman who had a, a clearance and wasn't very high, but, you know, he had to deal with stuff. Um, it struck me as very odd that Colonel Corso would release that. And now when that is done, a kind of book like that is published, it usually means he has permission from somebody, some agency, to release whatever's in there or to jumble whatever the truth is and put it in the book, all right? Because uh, that that uh, security oath never goes away, whether we're in the service or not. So that was my first impression was the same as Phil's when it comes to that. So well, 
And well, you see that a lot. You know, the area I really look at. Uh, you know, with my background, uh, you know, and I, I'm also trained in an area of what's called the scientific content analysis of language. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the evaluation of written and verbal text for deception. Uh, it was a process that was developed by the Israeli Mossad. Um, so it's, it's, it's highly effective. And so when I look at those different types of things, a good example would be um, if somebody was in uh, sensitive special ops, uh, they were, um, you know, a Navy SEAL. You have those that um, weren't really, but act like they were, and they just tell every story, they every mission they went on. Um, real special forces don't talk about it. They don't share That's it. Right. Um, so um, how people speak and what they speak to is important in my evaluation, just in behaviors and in information. Very true. Okay, uh, this is an appropriate question from Peter in Bogota, Colombia. Peter Shelley. Actually, would we like to take our break first very fast? I'm so absorbed here. I forgot about the mid-show break. So you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guests. Stick with us. Uh-oh, it's that time again. Hi, it's Cupid, and we're going to shoot the arrow at your lover. That's right. The charming little cherub is back, and this year, he's got glasses. <laughs> yep, picked him up at the Goodwill. Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> Listen in to ON Radio for your chance to call in and guess how many arrows Cupid will have to shoot to land one in your lover's heart. Winners go into a drawing for a $100 Cardi's Furniture gift card, a $50 gift card to Park Square Florist, or a $25 gift card to River Falls Restaurant. Losers get a nice imported chocolate consolation prize. Listen, play, win with ON Radio. You can depend on us for public service. ON Radio. Small town radio, gotta love it. Just a reminder to everybody out there, Valentine's Day is coming up. In case you forgot, like I almost did. Don't forget it. Oh, no. <laughs> Boy, you have a wife and a mother. I know. Anyway, so uh, let's get back to uh, our question here from Peter in Bogota, Colombia. Indeed. And Peter In the writes, age of balloons here, that's very appropriate. <laughs> Oh, boy. (laughs) In more ways than one. Anyway, uh, so Peter writes to us, uh, Various theories involving balloons uh, have been proposed to explain Roswell. Um, There is one variant of balloon idea which uh, deserves more attention. This is a theory that John Keel advocated, a World War II Japanese uh, Fugo balloon. It is a, a historical fact that Japan launched thousands of balloon bombs against the United States at the end of the war. Hundreds of these balloons uh, reached the United States and crashed or and uh, blew up just as they were designed. Uh, this was kept a absolutely secret from the public. Remains of these balloons have been discovered up to the present. Uh, debris from these included uh, metallic parts. In short, uh, a summary of this discovery, and he kind of goes on. Um, the FBI confiscated it uh, the next day and, uh, told the boys and their families never to discuss it. A short article for it, etc. Um, what say you about this theory? Well, let's take a look again at the behaviors. So, in the information 
being discussed there, the FBI responded and said, don't talk about this. Compare that to the response at Roswell. Significant military response, not only in the number that responded, but in expenses and resources um, to secure the sites, to move the materials. Um, those are pretty significant differences. And why would they be so different? Different if you know, if you have one that's known a Japanese balloon um, compared, you know why such a large difference? And that's um, that's what's really fun to look at again is those behaviors and and what actually occurred, not in theory, but what actually occurred. Uh, Jesse, any comments? Yeah, you know the one thing is that it took there was so much debris that was hauled off that. A you know a, a, one of these balloons where there's a, I actually referenced that in a, a book I had a while ago, and it's just the, the just the amounts of debris are so disparate between what debris would have been found for that particular kind of balloon and what my grandfather was looking at, it just doesn't add up. It would have taken you know perhaps a hundred of these balloons to make up the amount of debris that had to be pulled off from my, what my grandfather talked about. So it doesn't quite fit the narrative. It is interesting because you have the, a lot of times, even from raw and targets to the rest of it, it does sound like similar material in the first crash site. But even just the amounts of debris, a scoring where it hit and that kind of thing, don't quite fit that narrative. Not saying it's not a possibility, anything is, but um, it just didn't quite fit what my grandfather talked about. Okay. Um, one question that always uh, kind of bugged me is that uh, after your grandfather came out about this, was he harassed or otherwise bothered by the authorities? Or we have a large segment of the audience that are uh, fans of Men in Black, MIBs. So I guess today I guess it's the people in black, so PIBs or whatever they are. Mm, Mr. Uh, Pib. Yes. Uh, was your father ever harassed, or your grandfather, I should say, or your father, harassed in any way by people who uh, might not have wanted this uh, information discussed? Yeah, my my grandfather, or at, at a time when I wouldn't say fearful, but careful about he would, what he would talk about in public. Um, his his last days were actually um, where he was fearful about information that had gotten out that he had he had given out, and that uh, that that could have followed his family we, that we could have been harassed and that kind of thing by the government or by whoever um, for more information. He was a uh, uh, he was, especially, you know, in, in as we talked about, I think, at the very beginning, um, when I was a young child, and there's stories about, you know, you talk about this, they're going to find your bones bleached in the desert or whatever. That was actually a reference that I had heard through our family, and then I heard it, you know, follow through in people's books and that kind of thing afterwards. So he, he definitely had, was, uh, had, um, was and I, I don't fear is the right word, but very uh, respectful about his position in this and was careful about what how he brought it out. Um, more back to your question, my father was definitely harassed um, in areas he should have never been harassed. I always remember um, a, a couple instances. One where it came out that the, the narrative was being pushed that my grandfather was never in the military. And my father really got upset about it, went back and showed what we have, all these records, et cetera, et cetera, and that narrative disappeared. And then my father, who was really beyond reproach, um, was being indicted for, um, it just, you know, in, in the media for, uh, 
being a motorcycle rider and a mountain climber. And that, that was some of his hobbies. He loved to mountain climb and that kind of thing. And that's all I could really go against him. But it was, if there was a narrative basically that you do not, that, that all this was made up and, and why are you doing this and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, uh, all I could say is that no, he definitely believed in Roswell as my grandfather did. Yes, there were influences. Uh, yes, things like our phones being tapped and that kind of thing happened when we grew up. All this was, was part of that, the tale of Roswell, but, uh, there were definitely other people of interest, whether they're government or, or civilians, I don't know, um, that were trying to put, you know, snuff out the story and were fairly, fairly rough with my, my father anyway. So that, that does bring up a really interesting question because you do kind of make a large sacrifice by, by coming out and, and making a stance and, and talking about all of this. And I don't, I don't know if we ever asked him the question. I don't recall. Um, why, why did he, he come out and say, you know, let's, here's, here's, here's what happened. You know, this is what I experienced, et cetera. Because, you know, at the time, right, it's post World War II. There's a tremendous trust in, in government. And and all of that. What what made him want to, you know, write a book, talk about it, you know, and and, and kind of push push the the narrative. Are you talking about father? Yes. Oh, which which one? Oh, uh, <laughs> I'm talking about yeah, you know, your grandfather Jesse Jesse Marcel, oh, right? Oh yeah, that made Marcel, or he became. Okay. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, he the. And I'm not quite sure if my, my father talked about this. I think he did in a book. But it was, he talked about, uh, my, my grandfather was a huge ham radio operator. And somebody somewhere recognized my grandfather's name uh, and, and related it back to Roswell. And was he involved in this talk about a UFO back in the 40s? And he started talking about it. And, you know, he was well into his retirement. And he was kind of interested, you know, interested. It was always something he's excited about. He was very, Believe it or not, he was very proud to be part of it. Um, he was actually very, very excited that he was one of the few people that was directly on site at the very beginning. Um, but he, so he started talking about it, and then Stanton Friedman um, was some of that information related to Stanton. He interviewed my grandfather, and then he just kind of—it's—it's it's almost like I, I wouldn't say getting it off your chest, but it kind of, a little bit like that. Um, he had kept it bottled up for decades and wanted to get uh, you know basically off his chest. I, I think there was a certain reverence towards his age that he did not want what he viewed as being the truth, which I do believe in, um, that, uh, that, uh, this story shouldn't die, that there was, there was relevance to it. And, uh, um, I think that was more like he wanted to preserve the truth, um, and, and get it out there. So in, in a way it just kind of started, it started happening, started snowballing. And, uh, and there's, there's lots of things been said back and forth, but at the end I'd like to say that, my grandfather was actually very proud of the story, even though, yeah, he did go through some rough times because of it, but he didn't want the story to die with him. Because my, my next question is, uh, have either of you ever been harassed or threatened or warned? Well, in my career, yes, but not related to this. Okay. I guess that's fair, yeah. Yeah, the caveat is related to this. Jesse? Uh, no. You know, I, I, it's interesting, but the number of people that are interested in Roswell are, uh, again, it's kind of a door opener. I'll be in a meeting of some kind, and somebody will say, hey, your name sounds familiar. 
I said, yeah, that was my grandfather, that was my father. And then they start talking about their stories and what they've learned and what they understand, or even that that relates out to entire, in governments in in different countries, where they come back and and they want to talk and say, hey, we have something that was strange. What do you think of that? Can you compare that to Roswell? Um, So it's, 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 uh, you know, and that's, it's been, for me, it's been very positive. Uh, I'd say that the number of people come to me and say, well, you're crazy, there's nothing to it, you're, you know, you're part of a, a made-up story of some kind of a conspiracy, is really almost non-existent. You know, some people might just not tell me, but um, by and large, people understand that something happened in Roswell, there was a definitely some kind of a cover-up, and that, uh, like I said, I always stand by what my grandfather and father believed in. My, my father, like I said, I, 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 I'm excited to hear that he was on your radio show that you know that his, his one of his dying wishes was that there was more communication with our government more more uh, some kind of a coming out of our government saying that yeah Roswell in fact there was some re- legitimacy to it and that of course he passed away when that happened but but uh this was this was part of their life they guided my father in a very positive way um he was a medical doctor but he was also a scientist he built a a, a, a huge observatory to study the skies um, was a brilliant physicist and those sort of things. And those things, he was, this Roswell created an atmosphere that allowed him to ex- ex- express himself in those matters and, uh, and really live a life looking to the skies for answers. Yeah. Ben, you look like you have another question. Oh, I, I always have questions. Um, but I, I think it, it's, we're, we're burning up the sour pretty, pretty quickly. So I guess, I guess what we should really do is kind of give you guys some space to talk about what you what you're working on, where people can find out more about you. So, so Jesse, if you'd like to start, yeah. Well, I met Dan. Uh, well, it's been about a year now or, or so, and and there we, we have we def, we have some mutual interests, and we, we were talking about you know how do we bring uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me uh, a new angle to this? And angle might not be the right word, but do some legitimate forensic investigations into not only Roswell. But some of these other stories are happening all over the world. Um, I, I'm lucky enough to be, again, in the position where people do come to me from who knows where, um, Argentina, Uruguay, or Brazil, those kind of things, and they want to express some stories and share what they have and maybe some data. And I'm not really equipped to to analyze that other than, oh, that looks interesting. And Dan comes in, and he can look at this with an, an eye um, that this is a little different than mine, more logical, and, and can bring science into it and bring, the, like again, that forensic uh, investigation into these stories and then develop, uh, you know, is this something worth pursuing, is it not? Is it something we need to do, you know, to be able to ask the right kind of questions, those kind of things. So that brought us together. And uh, and, and out of that, we are exploring a lot of different opportunities. So, uh, Dan, did you want to? Yeah. Very important. Uh, Dan, comments? You bet. So... My interest, again, has really been from a forensic examination and bringing science to uh, at least explore um, different things and start from a point where there's no conclusion. You know, it's like um, my claim to fame is I got a first-degree murder conviction and a no-body homicide. It doesn't happen very often, but a big part of that... A big part of that is we didn't start with a conclusion and then work backwards and try and force the evidence to fit a particular narrative. Um, that's how I work in investigations. 
Uh, I'm a graduate of the FBI's Forensic Facial Imaging uh, Academy. I've done a lot of work with the FBI and, and different federal agencies, so I understand how they work. So my interest is to examine or develop systems to um, better gather data. One of the issues I have with current systems in reporting UFO sightings alone is it's very difficult to gather data outside of um, where it occurred, where the report came from, time of day, and maybe what the weather is. But when you, when somebody, I'll give an example. So in forensics, so I do suspect sketches. Um, you know, if somebody sees a bank robber, they'll call me in and I'll interview that person. I don't just ask them to say, what did the person look like? Because that's subjective. You know, um, using, you know, I don't, I don't say how tall was that person because that can change memory because now they're taller because I said the word tall. It's like if, if I ask, if right now there's a system where I saw a light in the sky. Okay. Um, interesting enough, but what did that light look like or, or shapes? So if I ask somebody, describe the shape and they said, well, it's oval. What does oval mean to them versus oval mean to me? So it's about developing a system where people can actually make a selection. So that shape, which is shape number B12 in a, in a catalog of shapes, is much more accurate than a description. And when you have those types of systems in place where this is the color, and they can select from a color chart that's coded, um, time of day, weather conditions, well, you can... It was raining. Well, that can mean a lot of things. Rain in the you know, jungles of Brazil means different than the rain in Clarkson and Washington. Um, but then once you have those types of systems, you can accurately start to identify patterns and what people are seeing um, and have a little more of a scientific approach. And we've recently been engaged by some individuals that have recovered artifacts, and I'm not going to get into details because we're still gathering that information, but is to look at them and have them dated. When did they occur? How were they made? Um, my role in those types of things is to examine, um, you know, what glues were used, what materials were used, an XRF to, to determine what the material is actually is. So it's about being scientific and again, starting without a conclusion, um, and, and stop the process of forcing um, information to fit somebody's narrative. That's what I'm after. Mm, that's that's a really interesting point. I like that. Yeah, and I um, I'm I'm gonna get a little little granular for a second, so um, apologies. Uh, in in in, in ancient Greek philosophy, there was this idea that there were different ways in which we engaged with knowledge. So, and they had different words for it. So, ecumeny was the word was basically the way in which we engage and use scientific knowledge. Techni was the way in which we engaged with technical knowledge. So, you know, like building things. Um, then you had uh, was it ecumeny? No, I'm sorry, it's epistemi is is what you used for, which is where we get the word epistemic from, right? So, epistemi you use we would use to engage with scientific knowledge, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then there was one that they spe- there was a specific type of knowledge that they used called doxa, 
and doxa is this the knowledge of public opinion and that's important because we can get all the data we want but we still need to interpret it and we interpret it using opinion so using using that model right um I, I've found that the, the prob- one of the really interesting sort of – I don't want to say problem. It's not a problem. We'll, we'll call it a trait. A trait of ufology is the endpoint is always something to the effect of there's something that's coming from outer space that's coming here. And so if we, if we go with that basic sentence, is there a way to make that more scientific? Oh, absolutely, I believe there is. Uh, It just has to do with exactly um, like the system I was talking about, to where we can evaluate um, and develop patterns and information that's being reported. Um, You can move it to much more of a scientific approach, because once you start to develop patterns, um, you can start you, you have a better opportunity to determine what's causing um, these sightings. You know, what else is going on? What do we know? Um, is there a weather anomaly that's going to create a, a, a certain visual in the sky? We know those things can occur. I mean, you just look at the northern lights. Um, but it's, 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 the, it's so critical to gather clean data instead of modified data. And again, that'll come back to um, what people see. Because even even when somebody sees something and they're excited and there's adrenaline and there's different things that occur, um, how you interview that person and gather information is is critical because you can taint memory. Um, if if I wanted to and had a nefarious reason to do so, if I went and interviewed somebody that actually saw a bank robber that was, and they initially said, oh, they were short, they were heavy set, um, they were Hispanic or whatever, white male, whatever you get into, if I wanted to, I could make them believe they saw a tall person um, that looked like this. Because it's very easy to modify or interfere with memory, particularly when it occurs when it's an excited event or a trauma event. Um, and it's so important to develop those clean sources of gathering data that, in my opinion, in the ufology world, don't exist. Mm, that's a that's a really good point. Um, we there's a, there's a really a really great friend of ours, uh, Father Anthony Perkins. Who was a uh, been on the show? He's been on the show, show actually. But his his whole thing is he he has a PhD in political science and also was a uh, warrant officer in the mil- in military intelligence. And um, I remember one time I was I was talking with him, and he made this really interesting point because he was he was like you know the paranormal is really interesting because it shows this like this principle that we have that we always try to connect the dots. And we have these data points, right? So you're walking through a cemetery, and you hear the leaves rustle. And the only data point you have is that the leaves rustled, and you're in a cemetery, and you think, oh, there's a ghost behind me, or there's someone else here. And you start to put this story together with these like very small points of data, but really all you have is leaves moving, and you're in a cemetery, and it's windy. That's really all you have going on. And I, I think it's really important that... 
we realize how little data we have to work with and and it's it's you're right it's hard to get clean data because you know it's a subjective experience of of you know of some sort of objective reality that we can't quite get our heads around and and the real thing is you know we we work with what we have but is there any more we can kind of get out of it besides you know like you said weather weather conditions you know if there happen to be any planes going overhead at that time if you if you check out flight logs or anything like that what what's sort of the next step how do we how do we create that that other sort of tier of of data well that's what i'm working on right now with Jesse and part of what we're planning on doing as well as is to start getting out in the communities travel from different locations you know we're trying to set up some different events where we can start to talk to people that um, have observed events um, that they believe, you know, may have been a UFO or whatever, but to have conversations with groups to identify some commonalities that may be occurring and then develop a uh, reporting system that can be deployed uh, internationally. So instead of you know, I saw a shiny object in the sky. You have a catalog of, you know, they go to a website, they review uh, images or shapes or all of that, and they make selections based on reference memory. Because in my opinion and what I've done, and I've been doing forensic interviews since 1998, um, a reference memory is much cleaner than a recall. So if I, an example would be have a system so to keep it simple, it would be more like this. Instead of saying, tell me what that person looked like or tell me what it looked like, did that person remind you of anybody you've, you know or met? Because when you ask it that way and they say, well, yeah, it reminds me of my Uncle Billy Bob. What about that person reminded you of Uncle Billy Bob? So now they're making references. Well, his nose looked like this. And particularly in the crowd, when different people see the same person, if 40 people saw the same person, I'm going to get 40 different descriptions if I go on recall memory. Mm. But if I get reference memory, it's going to be much more detailed and fit truly what that person looked like. And so that's the type of system that we're wanting to build so that we get much more accurate about what people saw. And then, you know, after large, a significant amount of data is entered into that system, that's where you can build patterns. Okay, are there global events that are occurring when sightings spike? Um, was there an earthquake? Was there different things? Because it's so subjective. I'll give you an example of this. Just happened to me in a hotel. And I actually have a video of it. It was kind of it was unusual. I can't explain it. But uh, I was in a hotel room and I'm getting ready in the morning. And I'd had a couple unusual things happen during the nighttime, and that woke me up. And but I'm in shaving, and out of the corner of my eye, I see the shaving my the can of shaving cream slide across the countertop in the bathroom. 
I thought, well, that's a little weird. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, whoa, okay. So I literally, I got my phone out and I said, dare you to do that again, kind of being the um, smart aleck that I can be. Um, and lo and behold, it slides across the counter and I have it on video. So what could be my initial, oh my gosh, there's a ghost in here. I don't know if there's a ghost in there. Um, what are their vibrations within the facility? Was there an earthquake? Um, is there some uh, magnetic component to the material that the countertop's built on? It's real easy because I've shown it to a lot of people. Man, their first thing is, that's a haunted hotel room. I don't know that. I could certainly build the narrative to make anybody believe that's the case, but I'd much rather figure out why did it really move across the counter. That that's I love that. Jesse, we have about 30 seconds. Uh, final thought? Uh, just exciting. I think this relationship they're building with Dan is going to take a new look at uh, some information, develop a new way to look what's going on. And I do, uh, on, on a larger sense, you, when you went back to the communications of, you know, in Egyptology and that kind of thing, is that science and some of these theories are starting to come together. Um, it's more a matter of technology if there's anything, you know, how, how we've been visited, those sort of things. It really, in my structure and everything I've seen and learned, it's not a major, a man, uh, it's not a question as if it's, is, has the technology caught up enough to the point where we can be visited by whatever these, you know, our, our, our brothers and sisters out in the stars. Um, so. Yeah. Here they are, folks, the UFO research dream team. I, lo- I love that approach. So Ben, uh, take it take it away, please. Sure Our thing. And we'll, we'll we'll hop right into these. So you can look for us at the New England Parafest in Kittery, Maine. That's on April twenty second and twenty third, where we will debut a new presentation on mimics in the paranormal. Uh, we'll be at the Para Expo twenty twenty three, aboard the USS Salem at Quincy, Mass, uh, May nineteenth twenty first. We'll be among the speakers and we'll broadcast live from the ship on Sunday, May twenty first. At this event. We will de- debut yet another presentation, When We Die. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of debuts going on. And uh, other events in 2023 for which we or uh, I will be present include the Exeter uh, UFO Festival in September and the Arizona Dowsers Conference in October. Uh, you can visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 1,100 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008. Uh, from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WOON, AM, and FM. Uh, also, you can hear many of these broadcasts on uh, the major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. And our show app is simple but free at BehindTheParanormal.com. There's a link right there on the uh, front page, the home page. And you can browse our books along with those of our guest co-hosts at that show website. Uh, you can also find out more about the show, our many cases over the years, our public appearances, and how to book us. And the website also has a charity page, and you want to make sure that you please visit that and support these charities, uh, all of whose uh, operators uh, we know personally, and we really check them out, and it's good. So what do we got for next week, Ben? Well, next week, that's uh, February 19th, uh, we'll bring you an open line show with listener questions and comments from all over the world. Uh, so you can send your questions to us at paul at com, or you can send them to us via Facebook. Uh, we leave you today with a rather Eno-esque quote from the great Dr. Jacques Vallée. Quote, 
If they are not an advanced race from the future, are we dealing instead with a parallel universe, another dimension where there are other human races living, or where we may go at our expense, never to return to the present? From that mysterious universe, are our beings projecting objects that can materialize and dematerialize at will? Are UFOs windows rather than objects? I'm Paul Eno. I'm Ben Eno, and thanks for joining us on our cosmic journey. We'll see you next time on Return to This Radio Frequency 167 Hours from